0: Once upon a time, we used to do shows in front of live audiences, with live audiences. We would get them to sing with us, (laughs) emitting things from their mouths and noses. This is all pre-pandemic. You're going to hear one of those shows today. The reason we're re-airing it is because there's a new movie about Elvis Presley, directed by Baz Luhrmann. There's a lot of talk behind it. People who never really got Elvis before are getting Kind of excited about Elvis. So this is a show that we did about Elvis Presley. We took our own rather unique approach to it. I think it's also the first time we really did a full show with someone who is now a good friend, LaTanya Farrell. So you're gonna hear her amazing singing. Nobody really ever feels too good about singing after LaTanya has been singing, but some of us will have to do that as well. So enjoy. This is a lot of fun. It's takes you back to a time when we could do a different kind of show.
1: my whole to be.
0: So now, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about who's up here. The woman you've been singing along with is the wonderful Latanya Farrell. <laughs> right, You're going to get used to doing that for her throughout the night, I think. But, so she's a, a singer, songwriter, a school teacher uh, in Bristol. I, I had worked with LaTanya once before at a gig we did at the Copper Beach Institute. And so I called her up and I said, LaTanya, how would you like to hang around with three old white guys with a lot of medical problems? <laughs> and she said, how did you get this number? Um <laughs> No. It was just too good to pass up, I think, you know, an offer like that one. And so already I knew who else was going to be doing this. Of course, if you've come here before, you probably know, or you may know from many other ways. Jim Chapdelaine, band leader, guitarist, cancer activist, producer. And the maestro, the man who's done, I think, more freshly squeezed than anybody else except maybe me, the maestro, and of course, the president of the President's College at the University of Hartford, Mr. Steve Metcalf. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, you know, this isn't really the anniversary of anything Elvisy. That's not why we're doing this. And I think one of the reasons we're doing it is I just suddenly thought, I don't really know Elvis Presley. I don't really know. I don't really have the relationship with his work other than the kind of default one you have. I think if you just sort of absorbed American culture, it would be really fun to take a deep dive. And so that's sort of what we've done, and or maybe a medium dive. I don't know. Yeah. So and I'm just going to begin by having everybody just talk a little bit about what their relationship to Elvis has been. So Steve, I'm going to have you get us started there.
2: I actually am. one of the people who can claim truthfully to have seen the first Elvis appearance on Ed Sullivan in 1956. So all I can say is that set something in motion off in my little eight-year-old heart. I was kind of a classical piano nerd playing my little Clementi sonatinas at the time. And uh, needless to say, Heartbreak Hotel and Hound Dog awakened something new and different in my heart and uh, I, I have maintained a relationship with that, whatever it is all these years.
0: So, Jim and I are basically the same age. We were actually in the womb together. And fraternal, uh, I was going to say, we, uh, fraternal uh, twins. Right, we went in different directions, though. Yeah. So, we're at a slightly different remove from Elvis. So. Yes, we but are. you're a guitar yeah. guy, so talk about all of that. Yeah. Um,
3: well, first of all, I also have a relationship with Elvis. A lot of you people think he's dead. <laughs> but he lives in a shed behind my house. <laughs> so I have an amazing relationship with Elvis. Colin and I are more like Beatles like we have a bullseye for the Beatles. That's where I sat and strummed my guitar for the first time and oh, I want to do that, which was a huge mistake by the way. So Elvis by that time had been absorbed culturally and was almost a cartoon because he was in all those hula movies and surfboard stuff. And I didn't realize how cool he was till a little bit later in that decade, that like towards about 68 or 69, like with suspicious minds. And I thought, wow, he's actually really good. And then I started paying attention, went back to the 54 to 58 period. And that's when he was just murdering things and was amazing. So, hopefully, we'll cover a, a whole wide array. But that period in particular is is pretty cool.
0: All right, Latanya, you are but a child. Oh. <laughs> I'm not
4: a child, but,
0: but you're a woman lot younger. Of a certain than, age. That's right. You can. You're a lot younger than we are, anyway. So, in some ways, I feel like this. What we've been doing has been part of you discovering Elvis. Oh,
4: absolutely. Kind of what Jim had said to me. He
0: lives behind your house. You no, know, he doesn't.
4: <laughs> No, he doesn't. But Elvis to me was kind of a caricature for mm-hmm. so long. I was about 5 years old when he passed away and I just, you know, as I grew up, I just saw different caricatures of him, you know, big, bloated and, mm-hmm. you know, and never never really got a chance to dive into his music and it's been a great great experience. I find I can really relate to Elvis. I would I would consider him a soul singer. He can sing anything. I've listened to many of his songs, many of his early recordings and his voice and what he can do with his voice from gospel to R&B to rock to I consider him a soul singer, so I feel kindred in that kind of a way with him vocally.
0: And we're going to get to that very specifically in just a second, but Steve, I also feel, and this is something we talk a lot about, is that the great singers are the singers who not only have wonderful vocal instruments, but they also have an emotive connection. And in a way that really, you know, from that period Jim's talking about, 54 to 58, there's a lot of other people singing comparable material. I feel like they're not wearing their emotions out on their sleeves where Elvis is. Well, yeah, and, and we we've,
2: we've talked about this with respect to other pop male singers, Sinatra being one and and I think both McCartney and Lennon being others. And I think it's true that the that the sort of slow sentimental side of Elvis, which we don't immediately think of as his kind of musical calling card, is is what really made him, I mean, I think if he had only recorded the, the Rockers and done Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, he certainly would have been a phenomenon and would have taken his place in the history of rock and roll. But I think it was, honestly, I think it was uh, Love Me Tender and Don't and
0: the ballads that made him an enduring Superstar, right? And and I mean, one thing that we were saying about "Love Me Tender" the other night is, it's like he's whispering it to you. I mean, there's so such intimacy. So, Jim, one of the ways that I think of you and Elvis is that you and your band, the Shinolas, you can sort of play anything, and you you've you've, you're, you've soaked up a lot of influences. Elvis is particularly early on; he's a sponge, right? He's down there in Tupelo, and he's just Soaking stuff up. Yeah,
3: so he's the where the headwaters where black meets white really for the it just smashes in and this transgressive kind of hip swaggering guy comes out of it. We were also talking about Elvis maybe appearing slightly androgynous and was that a threat to people too? Uh, you know, early on he was very threatening. I think to the sort of status quo, and he broke it. And, and by the time, I think, that Colin, you and I discovered him, he had become just the guy with the, the black leather jacket and the big hair and the sneered lip and stuff, so to go back and find the intimate parts of him was really a revelation for me.
0: Right. I mean, I think androgyny is the rule. I mean, Sinatra, as you've pointed out in the past, Steve, there was almost a feminine quality to his emoting. And then you get to Elvis. And then you get to the Beatles, who were mop tops when nobody, men were not wearing their hair long. And, and then from there to Jagger, Bowie, Michael Jackson, Prince. I mean, pretty much everybody who's been a major influence has kind of explored that. And, and me, too, obviously, i some <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but we want to actually go, sort of go back to Tupelo a little bit. Um, you won't have to sing on this. You won't be able to sing on this. Latanya. well, actually, you set it up. Go ahead.
4: So this song is called Baby What You Want Me To Do. And it's a song that Elvis had performed on his uh, comeback special and it was originally a blues song written by jimmy reed in 1959 and lots of other artists covered it but the neat thing about elvis he turned this blues song into a rock and roll song so i'll sing a little bit for you
1: i'm going up i'm going down you want me to do I'm going up I'm going down I'm going up down down up way you want me let it roll yeah 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 you got me doing what you're doing baby what you want me to do
4: Thank you. So that's what Elvis did with it. But a couple of years earlier, Etta James, a singer that I've also grown to really love, and I've delved in. See, I see you shaking your heads. She kind of put a little stank on it and, and did a blues version of it, which I love to perform. So can I do a little bit of it for you? Well, one, two, three. And you guys can. Put your hands together.
1: Mm, You got me running, running high. mm. Run high, high, running anywhere you want me. Let it roll, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Oh, you got me where you want me now Baby, what you want me to do Lots of fun things
4: with their voices, and there's a little part of this song where Etta does a little fun thing. So, Biss, I'm going to come over to you. This is my friend, Mr. Mark Bissonette. We go back years. Mark, did you know that I could do some fun harmonica with my voice? It's kind of like a harmonica ish kind of like a harmonica ish kind of
1: saxophone. Ready?
0: I' go home at this point, and it's like, "What is, what is, what is I, left to say, I, really? You know <laughs> So here we go. We're going to take a little break. We're live from Watkinson School with Elvis. Go ahead, let it rip. Support for
2: this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare.
3: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach.
0: Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing.
3: Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure.
0: Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have, to have tried and failed CPAP.
3: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health
0: One thing that we've talked a little bit about, and gets talked about en- anyway, is there were certainly were at that moment... Steve, I'll, I'll get you. Have you get us started on this? There were people around who were white musicians who were appropriating black music, but I mean, you know, in the case of Pat Boone, it's like here's the lead sheet. You know, uh, there's something different about what Elvis is doing. Well, yeah,
2: I think, I think over time people have come to realize that there is an authenticity to the relationship that Elvis had with this music. I remember re- interviewing Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, the, the white songwriting team that wrote a lot of his hits, who uh, were amazed when they first met him. They said that they thought, you know, a white man singing this rhythm and blues material was, quote, inauthentic inauthentic, which, which was ironic in a way because they themselves were two white guys who made a living out of writing music that sounded black. But anyway, uh, they were so impressed by the fact that Elvis really was steeped in this, in this music and had, uh, you know, spent time hanging around some of the black gospel churches and listening in the windows and you know, absorbing this stuff in a very genuine way. And so it was not It certainly was worlds away from the kind of very cynical, I think, uh, money-driven appropriation of, of a Pat Boone.
0: Well, and Jim, also, I think another word is immersion, you know, and there's a sense, and we a lot of us watch this. If you haven't watched this HBO documentary, Elvis Presley, Searcher, it's
1: fantastic. Yeah, yeah. parts
0: one and two, two parts. And one of the things that I think becomes clear there is he wasn't standing in a studio waiting for somebody to bring him sheet music. He had spent his life standing out behind the bar or going to the church, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, he loved gospel, and he was he wanted to perform everywhere. So he was dragging his guitar around playing for everybody since he was a little kid. And I think at some point we were talking like he, he had some cred. His father went to jail. He did all the things that like rock and roll people would do to, be, to get their degree in rock and roll. I think mostly the thing about him was he was so authentic and he was transgressive. He was willing to break things. But I don't even know if he knew what he was breaking. Right. Everybody else seemed to know.
0: You know, that once again, that sense of, well, I think Springsteen or somebody in that documentary talks about the radio then in Tupelo, right? Where you turn it from country to gospel to R&B, and he's just, he, he's steeping himself in all this yeah. stuff.
4: I'd, I'd like to kind of jump on what you said about the authenticity of it. I mm-hmm. mean, in watching the documentary, the documentary talks about how Elvis is... Came, he was really poor, and his family, his father went to jail, actually, for writing a bad check mm. because they didn't have money to eat, and that's why he went to jail. So Elvis was a product of the time and a product of the music that was around him, so there was there's something very authentic to who he was.
0: Well, you you were saying in rehearsal at one point, this is the music of poverty. This is the thing that runs through it, right? Oh,
4: absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he grew he grew up in the church, loved gospel music and he would leave the church and and run to the to the black gospel churches and sit outside and listen to them play. But he, again, he grew up in poverty, he grew up in the projects there, and not too far from other projects where blacks lived, you
0: know? So now, we are going to feature the great Jim Jopdelaine. In fact, we get to sort of step away, because you're going to illustrate one of the styles of guitar that was part of that milieu that we're talking about.
3: Yeah, I think what we're far enough away from Elvis where we don't think of like, whoa, this is a big technological breakthrough. But a lot of Elvis was Sam Phillips from Sun Records. So, and he had a sound in his head, and Elvis went to Sun Records for a while and was doing demos and wasn't really, it wasn't really happening. And then Sam Phillips left the room and they took a break and they recorded this song and he just turned on the tape recorder, like, oh, that's the sound I'm looking for. And one of the things that Sam is known for is this thing called slapback, which we kind of hear in rockabilly. So here's a regular guitar. So he took a tape recorder and took the heads really far apart, and he created this little delay that sounds like this. Hear that? Here's without. Here's with. Pop up, pop up, pop up. It's rockabilly. Well, that's all right, mama, that's all right for you. That's all right, mama, just do any way you do. That's all right, that's all right, that's all right now, mama, any way you do. Well, Mama, she don't told me, Papa told me to, son, that gal you're fooling with, she ain't no good for you, that's all right, that's all right, that's all right now, Mama,
1: head away.
3: Leaving town, baby. I'm leaving town, sure. Well then you won't be bothered with me. Hang around your door, that's alright. That's alright. That's alright now,
1: mama. That's alright. Jim Chapter
3: And also Elvis invented
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't do a lot of that stuff in rehearsal. That was uh, amazing. Um, so... So yeah, Steve, by 56, Elvis is not just a star. He's a business. He's a business maybe in a way that you know, even Sinatra hadn't been a business. He's, he's, there's a way in which, first of all, a couple of media, transistor radios, and then eventually television are going to come together. And he's going to be perfect for those things. But he's also just somebody who people like want to buy Elvis stuff. <laughs>
2: yeah of course this this uh, gets into the very uh, complicated and and i think somewhat ambiguous question of colonel tom parker the the uh, infamous Huckster, which is really what he was, who took over elvis 's life early on and and really ruled it from from then on and uh, you know we 've all i think uh, wondered what might this career have looked like had Parker not put Elvis under his thumb quite so early and, and decisively. And particularly, Elvis, as many of you may know, entertained a genuine wish to be an actor, a serious actor, and aspired to be Brando in particular. And and there's no, I think, any real reason to think that that was an unrealistic goal, except that Colonel Parker m- made sure that the movies that he cranked out year after year had nothing Brando-like about them. And, and I think that's a great... Uh, Tragedy of the Elvis story is that we never really learned what he might have been had he had he been with with somebody who cared more about Shall we say in, our artistic integrity, which I don't think were either of those words were in Mr. Parker's vocabulary
0: right and well, he could li-
2: even leave the country right yeah. Elvis Tell that story. Elvis
3: could not he was seeing his peer like the Beatles would tour Europe and then make a pile of money and he was really popular here but Tom Parker didn't want him to go to Europe because it turns out he couldn't get back into the country. He was Tom could Colonel Colonel well can I,
2: yeah. can I tell that quick story? another another Lieber Stoller story about that they told me and, and subsequently I think have gone on the record with that, that when they were working with Elvis uh, in the early years, they got it in their head to suggest to him to propose to him that he possibly star in a film version of the Nelson Algren. Uh, novel, A Walk on the Wild Side, and, and it, it would have been a great vehicle for a young Elvis, and they got very excited, and Elvis got very excited, and uh, as they tell the story, the next night they were in their hotel room in California, and two guys in black suits knocked on the door and came in and didn't bother to sit down, and they said, boys, to, to Lieber and Stoller, if you ever interfere in Elvis's business affairs again, not only will you not work for Elvis ever again, you will never work in this business again. And then they walked out. So that was the, needless to say, the end of the walk on a wild side story, which eventually did get made as a movie with Lawrence Harvey, but it it, it certainly wasn't what it would have been with Elvis.
0: No, nor was Lawrence Harvey's hound dog particularly good. But, <laughs> That's right. So, but Jim, back to the story you were telling. So, yeah, Colonel Tom is like I think he's born in the Netherlands or someplace like that. Yeah, he's just yeah, a, a,
3: yeah pretty shady dude all around, um, but certainly cowled over Elvis to the point where Elvis got sick of making those movies, like Steve is saying, and and not only wanted to make real movies, but wanted to tour, wanted to make real cool records again, because here he is meeting the Beatles and meeting Dylan, and they're all doing very different things. And and I'm sure he wanted to be part of that. I'm sure he wanted to be culturally relevant to the point where he could. I want to point out, before we forget, that he was a really genuinely kind and nice person Mm -hmm. and in his life gave away 200 Cadillacs and there's a great documentary called 200 Cadillacs that sort of traces each one of who he gave it to and and why he gave it to them. It's, so if you ever get a chance to see it, a lot of people don't talk about Elvis when they think about their Cadillac, but uh, <laughs> i certainly do, you know what I mean? Thank you very much.
0: So yeah, I think all of us, uh, LaTanya and I had a similar reaction There's, in this documentary, it becomes clear that Elvis wants to go on a tour. He never left the country except during his time of military service. And he didn't know why he wasn't ever leaving the country. The reason was because was Tom, well, you, Tom Parker wouldn't let him. Cause he wouldn't he, let him. Because Tom Parker couldn't, couldn't get back, back in, in the, the country. <laughs> I want to segue a little bit into, and, and I think you guys are all getting ready to sing again. You feel like you can do that? So this is another one where Latonya's going to kind of lead you, but, you know, don't so hold back.
4: We're going to do a little Love Me Tender, and I am going to try to embrace my inner Elvis as I'm singing this because he, this is one of the prettiest vocals I've, I've heard from him.
1: Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go, you have
0: I'm gonna return to something we were talking about before because I think this is a good example too. There's a way in which certain singers sing a song and they're just singing a song. And then there's a way in which certain singers kind of mean it. They, they really, really mean it. And, and Jim, I think this is one of Elvis's gifts as a vocalist, as a deliverer of songs. There's a way in which he seems very, very present there. And the more that we knew about the rest of his life, the more we started to think I've, that that's where he was present.
3: Will that be the only place where the real Elvis showed up would be on stage, maybe? Right. And that's why it was hard to get off stage, too, I think. Especially in the Vegas, the jumpsuit days. Why would you want to get off stage if you had? We thought about getting jumpsuits.
0: <laughs> that guy is out of business. I did yeah. get a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> He's oh, got and a, the shoes. Yes. Yeah. Blue suede. He's got <laughs> a return to sender tie. <laughs> You're
2: right. This is an official Elvis return to sender tie. Yes. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank
3: I, you. I have a pick that Elvis gave me this morning <laughs> when he came out of the shed. <laughs>
0: But you know Latanya there's you know as we even as we watch this uh, HBO documentary you know for example there's a moment where Elvis is on stage with Sinatra and Elvis has become a gigantic star Sinatra is quite happy to be on stage with him and Sinatra is perfectly comfortable and and he's singing I think Love Me Tender but off a little you know out of time and swinging it a little bit and then when Elvis tries to sing Witchcraft or something he seems almost shy and not confident, and almost a little terrified of Sinatra.
1: Yeah,
4: I, I took it as he was just humbled by the moment that he he's looking and he just can't believe he's on stage with Sinatra, and he's staring at Sinatra the entire time, and just has this humbled look on his face as you know Elvis is shaking his leg like he's shaking, but he's just just and seems to really be enjoying mm. the moment, humbly, and not trying to over sing. Sinatra at all.
0: But I think also, Steve, I wonder about this. I wonder also about the qualities of somebody like Elvis that make him very emotionally present in a song, able to sing very convincingly about heartbreak or tenderness. And, you know, I just think, not to overdo psycho history, but there's this kind of sense that he's constantly wounded in different ways, you know. His father goes to prison. He has this intense relationship with his mother. He was a twin. He was a a twin. twin. That's right, he was a twin. When she dies, he doesn't really seem to be able to recover from it. There's a fragility, I guess, is the word I'm thinking of.
2: Yeah, I think actually, even when you look at the jumpsuit Vegas Elvis, by which time you think he would have conquered some of these demons, he does seem like a very unsure person on stage, you know, and I think some of the the original insecurities, you know, he wasn't a popular kid in high school and he wasn't like, you know, a football star. And I, I think that the Elvis what shall we say, vulnerabilities, to use an overused word, stayed with him all his life. And I think you can see that even at the very end. Yeah, I mean, could, could
3: we say that in addition to a pioneering rock and roll, he pioneered male fragility?
0: It's <laughs> so a different kind of fragility, I think. But All right, so I think... Uh, Well, we don't really have a good segue into the song. We just want to do it, right? (laughs) Styles are changing. It's 1969, and uh, you know, obviously Elvis needs to catch up. This is the moment that you're talking about, too. Do you want? Yeah, yeah.
3: Where he kind of, sort of became cool again. At least to me, this became cool, and and this bought me a ticket to the past to realize, like, oh man, he's been cool the whole time. (laughs) Even in Viva Las Vegas, he was actually pretty cool there. So you'll notice that of the four of us up here. Really, one of us can sing. So I'm going to sing this song, but you guys are really going to sing this song with me. We're caught in the trap.
1: I can't walk out because I. can you see
0: Say hey. it.
3: choosing in your eyes Let's don't let a good thing die With honey till you sing
1: the U.S., we tend to think of
4: slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
3: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
0: I do think that one of the challenges for him is music is changing. He's got to adjust the sound a little bit. He's got to be a little bit different. But, I mean, Steve, there's a way in which the music world is changing so fast. It's like almost nobody can keep up with it.
2: Well, true, and it was changing around him after he got out of the Army in in 1960, and, you know, the Elvis, the post-Army Elvis is a different phenomenon for the most part. You know, it's a slightly softer, a little poppier, doing some older tunes. I mean, not necessarily... Less interesting, but uh, but less rock and roll-y for the most part, as as we're going to demonstrate with
0: the next. Well, I I think also, I mean, one of the things that that the documentary is built around is that is it 1988 he does that special, 68, 68, 68. 68. Comeback That's comeback. right, 68. Yeah, so he come he does this kind of comeback special. He's just. A, Amazing. He was uh, amazing. I mean, you, you see this guy who really has, I think, come back to remind everybody, no, I could do all this stuff, right?
4: Absolutely. So, we, we call that did, leather, that's
3: <laughs> leather Elvis. That little yeah. period was leather Elvis. Right,
0: which is why I'm sweating right now. Um, <laughs> this is leather, right. right um, <laughs> leather
3: collins. We're in the leather collins thing. I should have thought right this now.
0: through a little bit more during the costume period. <laughs> I was thinking nope. the
4: same thing. I'm like, oh, man. Right.
0: Well, what happened was we were at rehearsal and she said, what are you guys wearing? Like, we've ever given any thought to this. <laughs> In seven years. And so we felt like we had to do something. Same,
3: same thing we wear every day.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess maybe we just need to go into and, and have, once again, you are invited to sing. We couldn't stop you if we tried. We're going to do, with a very special treat for you, we're going to do Are You Lonesome Tonight, which I can't find the lyrics for.
2: And... Are you lonesome tonight?
0: Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your
2: memory stray to
0: a bright sunny day? Remember, we asked for help and called you sweetheart
2: do the chairs in your
0: parlor seem empty and bare do you gaze at your doorstep and picture me there is your heart filled with Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight?
2: I wonder if you're lonesome tonight. You know, someone said the world's a stage and each must play a part. Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Act one was when we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. Then came act two. You seemed to change. You acted strange. And why, I've never known. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me. And I had no cause to doubt you but I'd rather go on uh, hearing your lies than to go on living without you. Now the stage is bare and I'm standing there with emptiness all around and if you won't come back to me then they can bring the curtain down. Is
0: your heart filled Metcalf as you've Thank never you. heard Thank him before. Thank you very much.
2: Thank
0: you very
2: much. Thank you. So
0: I, we have a little bit of time. Do we have a little bit of time for questions? There's like two more songs left. Okay, there's Paul's up here. Yeah. So was he, I mean, besides being the singer he was, was he a musician? I mean Was he a three-chord guy? Or did he know how to play the guitar? Did he write his own music?
3: Definitely a musician. I wouldn't call him like a, a fancy guitar player. You know, he was more of a...
1: Right.
3: But he knew exactly what he wanted. And I think with the guidance of Sam Phillips, he was able to pull that stuff, they were they were able to kind of pull that stuff out of each other. But I would say he was a really good musician. I don't know what you think, Steve.
2: Well, you know, Paul, this gets into the age-old question, are singers musicians? And forgive me, but I mean, this is something that gets talked about. I mean, obviously he had a tremendous gift for, for knowing what to do with a song and how sure. to interpret a song. And if you look at some of those uh, outtakes of the early songs where he didn't quite get it the way he wanted, he worked on little things and, you know, it was very interested in the nuance of his vocal delivery. So, I mean, clearly he was a musical person, I mean, with, with very well-developed musical instincts as a, as a vocalist. Okay, thanks.
4: And I, w- I want to jump on that as a vocalist. But he had an incredible ear Right. in everything that I listened to. And a lot of it was recorded, recorded, of course, but uh, just to be able to hit the notes that he hit, spot on, right on top of those notes. I didn't hear him. No He's not auto, flat. No. He's, no yeah. There was auto-tune. no auto tune back then, yeah. Yeah. so his ear was. And remember, easy.
3: until Sam Phillips, every place he went, they told him he couldn't sing. He kept getting refused, and because he was a pretty weird singer. You know, we don't think of it as weird now, because people have absorbed. We've culturally culturally absorbed that stuff and and it comes out everywhere. But at the time, he was really breaking something. He was transgressive. And so he, until somebody was there to hear what he was doing, people just said, no, no, you'll never make it. They were very discouraging uh, towards him.
0: I, I think Latonya also, it's worth saying, like even watching you and these guys in rehearsals, singers, uh, as the has been being suggested here, half, I mean, good singers have a very musical idea of what they want something to sound like about tempo, about when things come in. I mean, there's films or video of Sinatra working with bands where he's backing them up to, you know, big bands where he's backing them up, you know, to bar 32 and do that again and do, and I'm just watching you as a singer. You, you have choices that are choices about what the musicians are going to do too. You can't do it without having that, that in oh, you, right? Oh, no,
4: absolutely. Absolutely. I have in recent years referred to myself as a soul singer. So not choosing any kind of genre, just whatever I sing, I feel. And I saw that and I really connected with elvis in that as i've listened to his music from the beginning of his life to the end of his life he's saying from his soul so sometimes you hear him singing something and it's just so sweet and tender or sometimes he's singing something and it's kind of rocky but he throws this you know it sounds mm. like he's singing opera right and i'm sure he could sing opera as a, as a vocalist and mm. listening to what he's doing with his voice there's no doubt he would be mm an awesome opera singer.
0: Jim, one thing that I also noticed was, in terms of the other musicians, it started to get more complicated at a certain point, and so Scotty Moore, who was, you know, very much a foundational player for Elvis, at a certain point you look at a session, and now it's Chet Atkins, because... Actually, they... it was
3: the great James Burton, finally, yeah. who he stole from Ricky Nelson. Right. In fact, I think he took the Jordanaires from Ricky Nelson, and they had a really great relationship, which, and people kind of look at Ricky Nelson and think he's sort of milk toast, but he was a pretty cool guy, too. I don't think he was a guy who broke stuff but he could really deliver And I don't think he moved his hips at all, ever, one time. I don't think they ever moved. that's
2: right. Um,
0: So speaking of physicality, our next tune. Yes. All right. So we've arrived at almost the end of our program. And it's sort of the time when I thank Watkinson for making this happen and fiduciary investment advisors for making it happen in a different way. And it's also my chance to thank these wonderful, amazing, incredible musicians, Steve Metcalf, Jim Chapdelaine, LaTanya Farrell. I mean, we really have had a lot of fun in in rehearsals. Jim and Steve had never played together before, which no other musician in Hartford believes because everybody in Hartford has worked with both of them. And LaTanya is just a gift from God, as you can tell. So uh, we just feel so lucky to have been able to do this. Yeah, you shall. You ain't nothing
1: but a hound dog Crying all the time you ain't nothing but a hound dog Crying all the time Well, you ain't ever caught a rabbit you ain't no friend of mine When you said you was high class That was just a lie When you said you was high class That was just a lie Well, you ain't ever caught a rabbit you ain't no friend of mine Come on, Chappie. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm.